The California Dreaming Podcast is brought to you by Blueberry. There is more to making a podcast than just talking into your mic and hitting publish. You're going to need a little bit more than that. And I'm talking about reliable hosting so your time can be spent working on your show. You want accurate download numbers, you want to see the audience that you're reaching, and you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I've chosen to use Blueberry. It's simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website. It can't get any easier, especially for someone like me who knows nothing. If you host a show or you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give it a try for a month for free. Their dedicated support team will be right there to help you every step of the way. And with one month for free using our promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses to start up that podcast that you keep talking about starting. There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcast and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you'd like to go a little above and beyond, you can support the show on our Patreon. You can gain access to at least one exclusive episode per month, and there are currently more than 50 episodes that you can binge, so it's a pretty good deal starting at just $1. In addition, there are about eight premium episodes available for supporters at the $5 and above tiers. And if you're unable to sign up for a monthly subscription to Patreon, you can help with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping California Dreaming going, so thank you. Also, one last note, I did fall behind on getting this episode out for you guys, but I was able to get that bonus episode on Josephine Spiegel up for you, as well as two episodes on Patreon the week before. I am going to California for a couple days over Thanksgiving, but I should be able to stay on track after that. Thanks for understanding, and to those who celebrate, I hope you have a wonderful holiday as much as possible while we're still making our way through this pandemic. All right, let's get started. Over the course of this podcast, we have discussed notable people in entertainment who have either been the victim of a crime or the perpetrator. Those, of course, are the big cases that catch our attention when they happen. Well, at least that's the way it is for me. Oftentimes, because Southern California is a bastion for the entertainment industry, eventually those stories may end up on this show for that exact reason. Either the incident took place in California or there is a California connection. Going back to the very beginning of the show, right out of the gate, episode one involved Joseph's son, the actor from Austin Powers. We covered the murder of actor and comedian Phil Hartman, fashion icon Gianni Versace, Ronnie Chasen, Suge Knight, River Phoenix, Brandon Lee, Lana Clarkson, Bonnie Lee Bakley, Dana Plato. On Patreon, I've done episodes on Rebecca Schaefer, Linda Sobeck, and Johnny Lewis. I've shied away from some particular cases due to an oversaturation of coverage, including the murder of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman, Sharon Tate, and the Black Dahlia, Elizabeth Short. And there are still others that I someday want to get to, stories that involve 
celebrities, or the rich and famous. These deaths, while all are tragic, some of them remain clouded in mystery. Some are technically unsolved. While we may think we know the answers, justice would never be had. Some are unsolved, and we are fairly certain we know what happened. And then there are some. There will always be questions that we'll likely never have answers to. While I do like to wrap up a story with a resolution, I do also enjoy a mystery now and again. One of my favorites that I just mentioned in my list was the shooting death of Hollywood publicist Ronnie Chasen. While the case, I believe, remains technically closed, the suspect who had been named her killer did kill himself, and doubt continues to linger as to if it was really him who murdered her. There are those who we think got away with murder. O.J. Simpson, Robert Blake, they went on trial and were acquitted, though suspicions would and do continue to haunt those two for the rest of their lives. Both of them are still hanging in there. O.J.'s 73 years old, Robert Blake is 87. The story we have today that we're going to delve into has all of the elements these infamous cases had and then some. A notable celebrity, a bloody violent murder, secret sexual proclivities, and a mystery that continues to linger to this day. In this 167th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Apartment 132A. When I was a kid, TV shows about war were popular in syndication. McHale's Navy, MASH, Gilmore Pyle, F Troop, or shows where the characters were or had been in the military, like I Dream of Jeannie, Major Dad, Private Benjamin, The A-Team. You all know what I'm talking about. I really didn't care for some of these shows, but it seemed like they were always on. And until cable came along, the choices of what we had to watch was pretty slim. While the TV show MASH would top the list of all-time favorite war-themed shows, following in a close second was a show called Hogan's Heroes. And I did not watch this one either. I did drop a hint in the Facebook group that this is what this episode was going to be about. And some of you said, oh yes, I did like watching that show when I was younger. Um... You could tell me more about it on social media once this episode goes live. And really, the only reason the show is notable to me is because of the story, which many of you have probably heard before, while some of you did comment on my picture that you hadn't heard it before. So this is a new story to you guys, which I like. While the events themselves did not take place in California, there is a connection. Hogan's Heroes was filmed in California, and one of the main characters in this story was living in California at the time that this happened. So Hogan's Heroes is a sitcom that aired for six seasons from 1965 to 1971 and is the longest-running series inspired by World War II. According to the show's IMDb page, the plot involves Colonel Hogan, played by actor Bob Crane, who was in charge of a so-called ragtag band of prisoners of war who were captured behind German lines. Apparently, the Germans are portrayed as somewhat incompetent and bumbling, 
which allows for Colonel Hogan and his men to use that as a means of sabotaging the furtherment of the German war effort. The whole idea and the concept of this show did come across as a bit off the wall because there really isn't anything funny about World War II and a show that evolved around bumbling Nazis and American prisoners of war didn't seem like it'd make for good comedy, but they made it work and Bob Crane's popularity and appeal is often credited with making the show a hit. Even though the controversy behind it is making fun of arguably the most horrifying war in modern history, there was no denying that people just loved the show. And the irony of it all was the two most notable Nazi characters in the show were portrayed by a couple of Jewish actors. As I said, the show starred actor Bob Crane, born Robert Edward Crane on July 13, 1928 in Waterbury, Connecticut, but he was raised in Stamford. In school, Bob was a musician, a drummer specifically, and he did dabble in some acting, but ultimately becoming a professional drummer was a serious goal of his early on. Those who knew Bob in school described him as outgoing, sociable, and he made friends quite easily. He enjoyed being the center of attention and preferred hanging out with friends in large groups. It's been written that Bob did not excel in school academically, nor did he ever participate in any sports while he was in school, and it was said that he ended up dropping out. But I did read another article that said he graduated, so I'm not quite sure which is which. From there, Bob joined the Connecticut Symphony Orchestra, but that lasted only about a year because he didn't really seem to be taking music very seriously. In 1948, a couple of years after graduating from high school, if he did in fact graduate, Bob enlisted in the National Guard, and he stayed there for two years. He got married in 1949, and with that first marriage, he had three children, and that marriage would end in divorce by 1970. After his honorable discharge from the National Guard in 1950, Bob found work in radio broadcasting and ended up working at a station in New York for a time. And then he got a job at WBIS in Bristol, Connecticut, which allowed him to be closer to his hometown. Eventually, this led him to being hired on by CBS in 1956 to host a morning talk radio show in Los Angeles, at which time he relocated himself and his family to Southern California. He was described as a witty radio show host, and he did have the opportunity to show off some of his drumming skills at times. And he had welcomed some very notable guests on his show, including Frank Sinatra, Jane Mansfield, Marvin Gaye, who I also intend to cover one of these days, either here or on Patreon, Mary Tyler Moore, and Marilyn Monroe. Bob was a huge hit with listeners in the greater Los Angeles area, and his show was consistently the top-rated morning radio talk show. He was eventually dubbed the King of the L.A. Airwaves. He was one of the very first radio show personalities whose annual income was more than $100,000 a year, which, when I inputted that into the inflation calculator, comes to nearly a million dollars a year today. Bob's work in radio opened up many doors for him, which included stints as the guest host of The Tonight Show. He also hosted a game show, as well as a spattering of guest appearances on a variety of TV shows and sitcoms, all the while keeping his day job with the morning talk show. One of Bob's first big breaks was a recurring role on the Donna Reed show, which lasted for about two years. 
He was let go apparently because his character was a little bit too flirtatious for their taste at the time, which we will find out later on was only a small glimmer of what Bob Crane was like in his personal life. Bob got an even bigger break in 1965 when he was given the lead role in Hogan's Heroes, a role which would go on to earn him two Emmy nominations back-to-back in 1966 and 1967, but he did not win. As I said a few moments ago, Bob's first marriage ended in 1970 after he became romantically linked to a fellow cast member on Hogan's Heroes named Patricia Olsen. They got married the same year that he divorced on October 16th, and having gotten married on the actual set of Hogan's Heroes, it's said to have been the very first marriage to have taken place on a soundstage. Bob and Patricia had one son together and went on to adopt a second child. As the 1970s rolled around, the powers that be at the network that carried Hogan's Heroes decided that they needed to make some major changes in their programming in order to appeal to a younger audience, hopefully those with burgeoning careers and higher incomes. The demographic that they had been popular with with their shows, aside from Hogan's Heroes, were also hits, were shows like The Ed Sullivan Show and The Beverly Hillbillies. These were not the viewers that the network wanted to attract anymore. And with that, even with these shows being consistently ranking high when it came to viewership, they found themselves on the chopping block, and Hogan's Heroes was one of them. Even though it was still a relatively popular show, CBS found itself wanting to move in a different direction, and this was highly disappointing for Bob and the rest of the cast. While Bob did continue to find work in TV and film, it was hardly what he'd been hoping for and nothing ever came close to the success of Hogan's Heroes. And the reason for that has been attributed to typecasting. His character on Hogan's Heroes is all that people saw whenever they saw Bob Crane, and it was difficult for him to be taken seriously as an actor. In 1975, however, NBC took a chance on him and offered him his own show called The Bob Crane Show, but it too was a disappointment for the network and was canceled after only 13 episodes. In the meantime, while Bob was still on a search for his next big thing, he did make an investment in a stage production called Beginner's Luck in 1973, purchasing the rights to that play. He also directed and starred in it, and it traveled to theaters across the country. After five years of touring with the play, the show finally landed in Arizona. Bob took up an apartment in a city located in the greater Phoenix area called Scottsdale, which is where he stayed while Beginner's Luck was in town. This is where Bob and his play ended up in June of 1978. So going back a little bit to Bob's time on Hogan's Heroes, one of his co-stars on that show was a man by the name of Richard Dawson. And if you don't know Richard from Hogan's Heroes and his name sounds super familiar, it's because like me, you've probably watched him as the host of the game show Family Feud. He hosted from 1976 to 1985, and then again from 1994 to 1995. He was the one who always kissed the female contestants, which some people really didn't care for, while others thought there wasn't anything wrong with it. Richard himself said it was a gesture of good luck or whatever. Those who didn't like it thought it was creepy and gross. I remember him always doing it when I used to watch when I was a kid, and I don't remember having any thoughts about it other than it's just what he did. 
It was a little bit difficult to find out any information about Bob's relationship with Richard, but it's been said in numerous articles and publications that the two were not very close. I did read on one thread, I think it was on Reddit, that Richard was up for the part of Colonel Hogan in Hogan's Heroes, but was passed over for Bob, and this is what caused a rift between them that never really healed. But then again, I read another article that said Bob and Richard were the best of friends. And Richard, in the years following Hogan's Heroes and the events that would unfold that we're going to talk about today, he has always refused to speak to anyone publicly about his relationship with Bob Crane and would continue to do so until his death in 2012. So whether Bob and Richard were friends or possibly enemies or maybe they were frenemies, it's really hard to say. Whatever the case was, one thing is known for a fact. Richard introduced Bob to a friend of his named John Carpenter. Richard and John had been good friends. John was a video and electronic salesperson working for what was then some of the most state-of-the-art electronic and video equipment manufactured by Sony. He purportedly sold equipment to Elvis Presley and Lyndon B. Johnson, and if you're not familiar with American history, LBJ is the 36th president or was the 36th president of the United States after President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in November of 1963. Anyway, apparently Richard Dawson noted that both Bob and John had a vested interest in video equipment. And this is a time when video equipment was just becoming widely available to have like in your own home. And they really were interested in making their own home videos. If you've heard anything about this case, then you may be aware that Bob Crane had somewhat of an insatiable appetite for women and sex. And owning your own video equipment was not only becoming more commonplace, it was also becoming more affordable. We really don't think about it much now with nearly all of us having a camera on our phones and we can capture pictures and videos anytime we want. But back then, it was still a novelty to have your own video camera and to be able to make your own home videos. Even into the 80s, home video cameras were bulky and not everyone had one, though it was becoming much more of a thing in the 90s and cameras were becoming more compact and continued to grow in popularity especially with the advent of digital media. But anyway, when this story took place back in 1978, Bob was very much into the latest video equipment, and he particularly enjoyed photographing and taping his sexual exploits with women. You know, it had always been kind of a scandal if anyone notable or a celebrity had a sex tape and it became public, but this was something that Bob was doing in the privacy of his own home. That was his business to do what he wanted to do with his video equipment. It has been said that it was kind of an open secret and people knew about it, but it wasn't like it was splashed all over the tabloids, at least not right away. From what I can see online, Bob's children seem to have been in a dispute over the years about their dad and his legacy. Bob Crane is known to have made many, many home videos of himself and countless women, and it seems to have been a thing that tarnished his reputation to an extent. Like I said, it was a secret, but it seems like a lot of people tended to know about it. It is said to have played a major factor in the direction that his life ultimately went, and many stories that are written about Bob Crane 
tend to revolve around the sexual aspect of his life. And I would be remiss not to mention it here in our episode on Bob, but at the same time, I don't want the other aspects of his life to get lost in all of the salacious stuff that went on in his private life. So Bob and John became fast friends, and it seemed that a major component of their relationship had been built on Bob's ability to attract women because he was famous and handsome, while John had the knowledge and the know-how when it came to the latest state-of-the-art electronics and video equipment. And together, so it's been said, they would be able to produce their own private collection of explicit videos for their own consumption. That may have been what their friendship was built on, and many believe that in Bob's post-Hogan hero's life, he struggled to reach that same level of fame and popularity, and that he may have spent much of his time indulging himself with women and sex, and that it had a detrimental effect on him overall. Of course, it would affect his marriages. But his children insisted that Bob was a devoted and doting father, that whatever he did in his private life never affected that. But you know, there's always that level of betrayal when it comes to their moms. Bob's two marriages would suffer because of his infidelity. While I don't condone the manner in which Bob treated his two marriages, I certainly don't want to take away from the positive things that his children all had to say about him as a dad, regardless of the scandals that would take its toll on Bob's reputation. So... For the episode, I'm not just going to skip over the unflattering details because there's no denying what happened, but I also don't want that to completely overshadow everything else that Bob's life was about, that he was an accomplished actor and very talented and a good father. Bob has been described as mercurial, which is a pretty good summation based on all that I've watched and read about him. He was at the top of his game, and Hogan's Heroes was a top-rated show. He was one of the biggest TV stars in the country. John Carpenter has been described as quirky. When you put them together, even though they seemed to be fulfilling each other's needs, Bob came with the women, John came with the means for them to preserve their sexual encounters on video so they could revisit those whenever they wanted. But to me, it sounds like the beginnings of a toxic friendship. But, like I said, they filled a need for one another. In an article in the Wayback Machine, it is said that Bob's interest in sex was strong and his hunger for it was insatiable, and he was apparently quite open about it amongst his circle of friends. He was described as very flirtatious, he often cracked dirty jokes with double entendres, Bob was said to brag about the numbers of women that he'd slept with, and that he also developed a fixation on explicit adult material, and it's also been said that he didn't exactly have the utmost respect for women, that he was crude about his sexual exploits, and that he thought of women as little more than objects to be used for his sexual pleasures and entertainment. I don't know if this is true or not. These were just some of the things that were written about him. Following the cancellation of Hogan's Heroes, Bob's sexual behaviors escalated into what some believed to be an addiction. And it seemed as though it was something that Bob was said to have been moving towards seeking help for as he was approaching the age of 50. Bob was very compulsive and reckless when it came to sex. And you know, after a while, 
when it comes to any other addiction in order to achieve those same feelings or to fulfill that desire, he had to keep looking for new and different and more. And in one article I read suggested that Bob, feeling down about his professional career having taken a dive after Hogan's Heroes, that he used women and sex to fill that void, that it boosted his ego. And part of that was taking pictures and eventually videos of the women that he was with. And he was said to have shared these pictures with people, very intimate pictures that sometimes made people pretty uncomfortable. It was Bob's desire to film his sexual encounter so he could watch them whenever he wanted. That was the basis of his friendship with John Carpenter. John Carpenter was three-quarters Native American and raised in Southern California. By the time he was eight years old, his mother was raising him on her own, and he eventually was sent to the Morongo Native American Reservation to attend school. John was married when he was 18 and soon after joined the Army and served in the Korean War. He had one child with his first wife, but that marriage ended in divorce in 1952. A couple of years later, he got married for a second time, and it wasn't too long after that when he developed an interest in electronics when he landed a job at a company that manufactured TVs. He was later hired to work in the aviation industry where he was the one that connected and installed radios and airplanes. John dabbled a little bit in acting, but it was when he landed his job with Sony that he started working with celebrities as a consultant, teaching them how to use the latest in audio and video equipment. He was with Sony when the concept of the VCR was being born. John Carpenter really liked being around famous people, and it just so happened that Bob was looking for someone who knew all about the latest in video technology. Bob began telling people that John was his manager, and he also alley-ooped him some women. And with that came the videotaping of the women that they would be with. And while it's been reported that some of the women not only consented to being filmed by Bob and John, but they were also quite pleased to be on film with a famous Hollywood actor. But there have also been reports that they recorded women without their knowledge. What the truth is, we can't know for sure. It all depends on who you're talking to. My best guess is it's probably a combination of the both. As I mentioned earlier, one of the things Bob Crane had been involved in was a stage production that he owned the rights to, that he starred in and directed called Beginner's Luck. The play traveled around the United States and in June of 1978 was showing at a theater in Scottsdale, Arizona. And wherever Bob went, John was right there with him. I read that John was able to work his travel schedule with work around Bob's travel schedule with his play so they would be able to meet up. I was under the impression that John often stayed with Bob wherever he was staying whenever he was in town, but in Arizona, Bob had his apartment at Winfield Place in apartment 132A, but instead of having John stay with him, he rented him a room at a motel nearby. I don't know how often the men coordinated their schedules to end up in the same area, but I did read that this was one of those times where John did fly into Phoenix for a business trip with his job and that he and Bob were hooking up on their downtime. On Monday, June 26, 1978, both Bob and John were in the Scottsdale area. This is summer, and Arizona is very, very hot during these months. So the two of them spent some part of the day swimming and relaxing. Afterwards, they purportedly went back to Bob's apartment to continue hanging out, 
but it's also been said that they were intending upon watching some of the sexually explicit videos that they'd made. Sometime that afternoon, Bob received a phone call from a young woman who was interested in trying to get Bob's help to further her own career in entertainment. The article I read said that she was bringing a tape that she had recorded. I don't know if it was her reading lines or if she was singing. It just said a vocal tape. She didn't want to bring it over during the day because she had a live-in boyfriend who worked at night. She said that she would come by in the evening. It was apparently common knowledge that Bob was kind of a player, so she didn't want her boyfriend to know that she was going to see him. There was more to their relationship than that, however, between this woman and Bob, because after he hung up the phone with her, Bob retrieved one of his videos and played it for John, and it was of Bob and the woman having sex, the one that he just got off the phone with. At approximately 4 p.m. on that same day, June 26th, one of Bob's Beginner Luck co-stars named Victoria Berry spoke to Bob and John and asked them to come to a barbecue that the cast of the play were having. While Victoria is exactly what Bob looked for in a co-star and a sexual partner, it is unknown if the two of them were ever intimate. I believe that there were rumors that they were, but either way, John and Bob decided to take her up on her offer and showed up at the barbecue around 6 that afternoon. They hung out for a while, they ate dinner, and they chatted with the other guests at the barbecue. They'd even left for a while and came back. Eventually, Bob got to talking to a woman that he had interacted with previously, and together they left the barbecue. The article didn't say what John did next, but the friends apparently parted ways at this time. The following morning on June 27th, John was working. He paid a visit to the local retail shop called Dynatronics, which is the company that he was employed with at the time. His job, it appears to have been in some sort of upper management capacity or a consultant. He spoke to the owners of the shop. He toured the sales floor. He checked up on their bookkeeping to see if there were any issues that needed to be straightened out. John left Dynatronics sometime between noon and 1 p.m., and from there he headed to Bob's apartment. They again spent the day hanging out and taking care of some errands. They ended up in some sort of strip mall or shopping center where they looked around and shopped. A place called Video World caught their attention, so the two of them went in there, and the manager of the place was really excited to see Bob as she recognized him right away from Hogan's Heroes, so that was a little bit of a boost for Bob glad that he was still relevant. The two of them looked around and looked at some VCRs but decided that they were way too expensive. I don't know how much they cost back then. I know my dad bought one when I was really young and I don't know how much it cost. I do know that when I got my first job back in I want to say 1990 the very first thing I bought for myself was my own VCR for my room and it was like $300 which was a lot. If you consider that in just another 15 years or so, a DVD player would be as cheap as $30 or $40. But anyway, after they left Video World, they continued to tool around, and then sometime after 3 p.m., they went to a photo studio and had their picture taken by a professional photographer. That sounded like a strange thing to do, but then again, these guys, the only thing that binds them together is their interest in women and sex and videotaping. It's an odd friendship to begin with, but I don't get the feeling that it ran all that deep. 
it was sort of a friendship of convenience and they're just kind of doing things to pass the time it seems like they ended up back at bob's apartment where they would continue to hang out and talk the articles that i read said the two men almost always talked about the women that they slept with they'd watch the videos they looked through Bob's albums of pictures of all the women that he'd been with over the years in various stages of undress, posing provocatively, etc., etc. For the rest of the afternoon, I believe that Bob and John were trying to look for some women to hook up with. Bob was the one who had the ability to attract the women more so than John. The first woman that Bob called up turned him down. Bob was scheduled to perform in Beginner's Luck that night so he definitely wanted someone to go out with after the show. So he called up a waitress that he had met recently and asked her if she wanted to go out later that night, and she accepted. He also asked her if she could bring a friend along for John, which she did. After the show that night, the four of them went out to dinner, but John was not hitting it off very well with his date at all. So after dinner, Bob and John parted ways with their dates and continued together to a local bar and restaurant called Bobby McGee's. Later on, the woman who waited on their table said that there seemed to be some sort of problem going on between the two men, that it was tense and they were kind of snappish when she took their order. She could see that they were not having a good time. She said, quote, when they first came in, they were tense towards each other. Tense is a good word because it wasn't a loud fight. It was nothing that other people noticed. I noticed because business was slow. It was something to do. You kind of notice how people are reacting towards each other. The Indian gentleman was sitting in the chair and Bob Crane was sitting against the wall. It was not a relaxed conversation. It was kind of a strained movement and the voices got louder. I studied speech in school so you could tell if it's relaxed. It's more smooth and soft instead of abrupt. Without hearing the words, I knew this was a tense conversation by the facial expressions and the body language. So this woman had her whole analysis of this interaction between John and Bob, apparently. Eventually, there came a time when Bob excused himself from the table and left, and John stayed behind. Shortly after 11.30 that night, Bob came back, but he came back with the woman that he'd been out with earlier that night. She was with him again. The friend she brought wasn't. And the feeling I got from this whole thing is your girlfriend gets to go out with Bob Crane and you get stuck with this frumpy sidekick. No disrespect to John Carpenter, but he's just not exactly the best looking guy. He's not a TV star. And I can see it being disappointing for the friend. Anyway, this may or may not have been the cause of the tension between the two of them. You know, if John isn't going to get along well with Bob's date's girlfriend, then they're both going to lose out. They came together, so they're going to leave together. But Bob seemed anxious to get with someone that night, and he went and convinced this woman to rejoin him, and apparently that was going to have to include John too. What went on between the three of them was not mentioned in the article, but whatever happened, those details were skipped over. The next thing is the three of them did go to breakfast together, Bob then took John over to the car rental place near the airport so he could pick up his car. Bob next dropped his date off at her house, and from there, he went to a place called the Safari. So I looked it up to see what the Safari was, and what I found in a 2018 article on ArizonaCentral.com 
it said, The Safari Hotel was the place to go in Scottsdale in November of 1956 when it opened to crowds on Camelback Road. As is the case with many successful enterprises that require vision, someone came along with an idea that would have been laughable to most investors. That someone was Bill Ritter, who, along with motel developer Ernie Ullman, saw an opportunity in the soaring heat of a Scottsdale summer. With resorts closing in the summer because their guests preferred the cooler climates of the north, Ritter parlayed that into an opportunity, opening a 108-room hotel next to a canal. Safari Hotel was not just another cookie-cutter resort. The Safari had fine dining, a popular lounge, shopping, and the two magic words that would draw plenty of action, air conditioning. During its run, it was a favorite for dining and entertainment, but eventually shuttered its doors in 1998. Today, there are some condos that were built on the land about a decade later, but nothing really left of the original safari. So, this is where Bob went by himself early that morning. At some point, Bob realized he had forgotten his glasses at the home of one of his lady friends. So sometime in the morning of Wednesday, June 28th, he went to that woman's place to pick them up. Then around 10 a.m., Bob and John hooked back up again, and they apparently went to another professional photography studio to get more pictures taken of themselves. Then they went shopping for a windshield shade for John's rental car because it was so hot, but they really didn't find what they were looking for. Next, Bob and John went to have lunch with the owners of Dynatronics, which they were really thrilled about having lunch with the Bob Crane. But the ordeal turned pretty uncomfortable because all Bob and John seemed to want to talk about was women and sex. John also told them that he was able to go from city to city with Bob because of the company he worked for. All of his travel expenses were covered, so he'd take care of business during the day so that they could play at night. Bob ended up borrowing a Sony video camera from one of the owners of Dynatronics, and from there, Bob and John went back to Bob's apartment. John left for a while to run a couple of errands and came back later that afternoon to continue hanging out with Bob. John was booked on a flight back to California the following morning at 10 a.m. Sometime that afternoon, Bob left his apartment and went to the home of one of the many women that he had been seeing. They had sex, and he took a nap at her place. When he woke up, they had sex again, and then afterwards, Bob went back to his apartment. This woman was later questioned about Bob's state of mind and how he seemed to be feeling that afternoon, and she said, quote, Bob appeared preoccupied, not as happy as he usually was. He didn't say what if anything was wrong, and I didn't inquire. In addition to that, she noted that Bob made a strange statement, something to the effect that John is not as popular as I am. Around 5.30 that same afternoon, an actress named Ronnie Richards called Bob's apartment, but John was the one who answered the phone. He told her that Bob wasn't there. He was scheduled to perform in Beginner's Luck that night, which he did. But his fellow castmates did notice that Bob seemed a little off that night, that he normally had a great deal of energy and always gave solid performances, but on this particular night, something wasn't quite right. The audience may not have really been able to tell, but those who did the play with him every night, they noticed. Later on, one of the women that Bob socialized with that night would opine that Bob was upset about his pending divorce, that it was difficult, 
There was a lot of fighting, and they had kids stuck in the middle of it. But anyway, after the show, they stuck around, they signed autographs, and they took pictures. And after that, Bob, John, and a few other members of the cast went out for dinner and drinks. After dinner, Bob and John went back to Bob's apartment. When they got there, John reported that Bob was going to call his wife, with whom he was estranged. John later reported that Bob and his wife had a big fight on the phone. At some point, Bob threatened to hang up the phone if she didn't stop arguing with him, and then he hung up. People in the neighboring apartment said that they heard the arguing too. Later on, Bob got on the phone with a girlfriend of his, and John said he overheard him telling her that he was not planning on getting back with his wife. Bob and John were not done for the night, though. It was getting kind of late, but they still wanted to try to find some women to have sex with. So Bob suggested that they go to a place called Bogey's. When they got there close to midnight, Bob called up a lady friend and told her he was at Bogey's and asked her to join him. She told him that she wouldn't be able to make it there before the place closed, so he suggested that they meet at Bob's other favorite place that was open a little bit later, the safari, to which she agreed. And they all met up there at about one in the morning. So Bob left the safari with this woman, and he was hoping that they'd be headed back to his apartment. John left at the same time also with the woman, going to his own motel, but it did not go well for either one of them. John tried having sex with his date, but she turned him down, and he ended up driving her home sometime between 2 and 3 in the morning. Bob also had no luck with his date. She didn't even want to go into his apartment with him. And this is when the timeline of whatever happened to Bob Crane next is completely shrouded in mystery. At some point, Bob eventually went to sleep in his own bed. And what seems to be the most probable scenario is that shortly after he went to sleep or sometime in the middle of the night as he was in a deep sleep, someone bludgeoned him on the left side of his head with some sort of blunt object. Bob was struck twice and he died as a result of those blows. It wasn't immediately known what exactly was used to hit Bob, but a theory would come up later on. The weapon that was used to bludgeon him was never found. Then whomever it was that attacked him went into the living room area of his apartment cut a cord from a VCR, and wrapped it tightly around Bob's neck. It was knotted a couple of times. It would later be determined at autopsy that when this cord was wrapped around his neck, Bob was already dead. He was two weeks shy of his 50th birthday. Bob had been scheduled to appear for an interview at a luncheon with a co-star of his from Beginner's Luck, Victoria Berry but he failed to show up, which was not like him. He would have called if he wasn't going to be able to make it. So a couple hours later, around two that afternoon, this would be Thursday, June 29th, 1978, Victoria went over to Bob's apartment looking for him. She knocked on the door a couple of times, but nobody answered. She saw that Bob had not yet collected his morning newspaper, which was still there on the porch. So she grabbed that, and next, she tried the doorknob, and to her surprise, it was unlocked, which was out of character for Bob. She called out his name a couple of times as she made her way into the living room. 
It was very bright and hot outside, so when she walked in, her eyes did not adjust right away to the darkness of his place. And his place was always dark in this way in order for Bob to ensure privacy when he was making his home videos. Anyway, Victoria looked around. The place was kind of messy. Bob had papers and magazines strewn about, as well as a camera perched on a tripod next to the fireplace. She called his name a couple more times, but then she thought maybe he's out by the pool. She looked out the window, but nobody was out there either. So Victoria finally ventured into the bedroom, and it's there she noticed someone laying in the bed in sort of a fetal position. She could see that there was a large, darkened area around this person's head, so she first thought the figure was a woman sleeping in the bed, and this darkened area was her hair. But as Victoria crept closer and her eyes adjusted to the darkness of the room, it became clear that this wasn't a woman. It was a man, and it was Bob, and the darkened area around his head was his blood. Victoria ran from the apartment. She got the attention of some of Bob's neighbors, who then called police. And this is where the crime scene begins to become compromised. It wasn't exactly cordoned off the way that it should have been. People were coming in and out of the apartment. People were using the phone inside there. Some people were smoking in there too. Apparently, the Scottsdale Police Department at the time, they weren't very experienced when it came to homicides for one thing. But then the homicide of a famous person, they just didn't know how to secure the scene the way that it should have been. And I believe I read in one article that the Scottsdale Police Department didn't even have a homicide unit. And another strange thing that happened was when the medical examiner arrived, usually what happens is that the body and the bedding and everything around the victim is collected and transported for examination in the lab, right? Well, that didn't happen in this case. The medical examiner got there and decided to try and figure out right then and there what it was that killed Bob so he started shaving the hair from around the wound on his head to get a better look at it. There was also a distinct mark left in blood on the sheets, which would later help identify what the murder weapon was, but that piece of evidence was not really taken into consideration at the time that it was being collected. One of the officers noted that there appeared to be semen on one of Bob's thighs, which he requested to be collected, but he was told that what good is that going to do other than tell you that Bob got some ass last night. So that semen was never collected. The VCR cord was also removed from around Bob's neck while he was still laying in the bed. The manner in which the medical examiner did these things, shaving his head, removing the cord, instead of collecting things and taking everything back over to his office to process the evidence, has been heavily criticized over the years. So as police officers were there speaking to Victoria, Bob's phone started ringing and she was allowed to answer it. One of those calls was from John Carpenter. Meanwhile, back in California, Bob's son, Bob Jr., he also received a call from John Carpenter. John told him that he was in Los Angeles and if there was anything he needed to let him know. At this point, Bob Jr. has no idea that his dad is dead. He thought it was kind of strange that John would call him up like that out of the blue, but you know, at the time, he had no clue about anything. 
It was later discovered that John had been making phone calls all morning, purportedly looking for Bob, which many people believe was very suspicious behavior, like it's an attempt to create an alibi. He's calling around, telling everyone he's in California. Kind of bothered by that call, Bob Jr. tried calling his dad at his place in Arizona. He said that it was around 3.30 that afternoon. So when he called, a woman picked up the phone and he asked for his dad and he was told that he wasn't there. Bob Jr. asked who she was and she identified herself as Victoria. So he asked her to have his dad call him when he got back and she was like, will do. She never said anything to him about his dad being dead. So a little while later, Bob Jr. was headed over to visit his mom and his stepdad along with his grandmother, who was Bob Crane's mom. And when he got there, his stepdad told him he needed to come inside. They needed to call up his father's lawyer. So he did. And this is when Bob Jr. was first told that there had been some unsubstantiated reports that his dad had been shot to death. Bob Jr. and his dad's attorney flew into Phoenix. They went to the medical examiner's office and saw for themselves that Bob was indeed dead. The focus of the investigation was immediately on John Carpenter. He checked out of his motel very early that morning and arrived two and a half hours before his scheduled flight. When he returned his rental car, he reportedly asked for the car to be detailed inside and out, but also said that the car had a bunch of electrical problems, so when the rental agency got it back, they had it sent out for service. Police quickly learned that John had been in the Phoenix area visiting with Bob over the last few days leading up to his death. They also knew that he had flown back to Los Angeles the morning that Bob was found dead. Also, in looking at the curious bloodstain left in the bedsheet, investigators thought that it might have been a tire iron that was used to bludgeon Bob, so they wanted to take a look at John's rental car. Because the car had been sent out to be serviced, it took some extra time to track it down, but when they did, they did find that there were some bloodstains on the inside door panel of the vehicle. The blood was later tested for typing, as DNA wasn't yet a thing, and it turned out to be the same blood type as Bob's, and nobody else who had been in contact with that car had that same blood type. What was also suspicious was the fact that Bob's date book, which was on the nightstand next to his body, was open to the date that he died, and it was written, John leaves 10 a.m. And they believed that Bob was supposed to drop John off at the airport. But I don't know because he did have that rental and you usually can go get that turned in at the airport. But at the time, police seemed to be under the impression that Bob was supposed to drop John off. But police, while it's hard to say how much they investigated other potential suspects because from the sounds of it, they focused in on John from the beginning. But when it started to come to light just how sexually promiscuous Bob was, there was a thought that that sort of lifestyle may have had something to do with it as well, such as a jealous boyfriend or spouse. And remember, we talked about at least one woman who was going to see Bob, who insisted on coming over while her boyfriend was at work. So who's to say how many of the women that Bob hooked up with were totally unattached? But there is the fact that there was no sign that anyone forced their way into Bob's apartment. No doors had been kicked in, no windows or locks that were broken, and those who knew Bob said that he was a light sleeper and would have definitely been awakened immediately by someone trying to break in. He was known to be pretty conscientious about locking the door, 
So investigators began to suspect that Bob's killer was somebody who was welcomed into his apartment, or it was likely that it was someone that he let in, or the person who did this had a key to his apartment, which it was said there have been a couple of copies of the keys made and that John had a copy, as did Victoria Berry. Police did entertain the possibility that a woman had committed this crime. Maybe a woman that had been spurned by Bob. Maybe something happened between them when she got upset about something. Perhaps she discovered that Bob had been videotaping their sexual encounters without her knowledge and she flew into a rage. Because during the ensuing investigation, many women claimed that they had no idea that they were being videotaped when they had sex with Bob, they only found this out after his death and they were informed by police that they were indeed on a video. On the flip side of that, they may have claimed to have not known out of embarrassment, but who knows. It's not like those video cameras were the ones we have today where they're so tiny and easily hidden. Those things needed to be set up in the middle of the room on a tripod with the camera trained on the area where the sex was happening. It's hard to hide this video equipment. And when you look at the crime scene photos, Bob clearly made no attempt to hide any of what he was doing. But then again, maybe the women just figured he was this guy in show business. This was part of the work that he did. Perhaps they didn't even necessarily know that the cameras were, in fact, on and recording. Investigators also took a look at Patty, Bob's second wife, with whom he was embroiled in a contentious divorce. There had been talks of fights that they had that had turned physical. There was one time when she reportedly picked up a VCR and threw it at Bob that caused him to bleed. But when they investigated Patty's whereabouts... During the time that Bob was murdered, she was more than a thousand miles away in the state of Washington, so she was cleared as a suspect. Besides, the detectives on the case were pretty sure that the person who attacked and murdered Bob was male. The medical examiner said the initial blow to Bob's head was inflicted with so much force that it literally cracked his skull wide open. Once that blow happened, the weapon was covered in blood. The second blow was also inflicted with a great deal of force, but because the arc of the cast-off blood spatter was not that wide, but was still powerful, it suggested that the killer, if the killer had been a woman, she would have needed to swing the weapon with a much bigger arc, and the blood would have flung off the weapon, and more of it would have ended up on the ceiling. And because of the short arc and the depth of the wound, the medical examiner opined that it was more likely to have been inflicted by the strength of a man. Now, I understand what the doctor is saying here, and maybe the likelihood of this having been a male killer would generally be higher, but I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that a very, very angry woman could do the same damage. Also, a woman could have solicited the help of a man to commit the killing for her, so investigators did take a look not only at Patty, but numerous other women along with their boyfriends and spouses, but everyone was eventually cleared as having anything to do with Bob's murder. Investigators interviewed dozens of people who knew or associated with Bob over the course of several days following the murder. It soon became clear that, in a stark contrast to the popular and much-adored public persona, Bob actually had many people that weren't so fond of him. Bob had gotten into a pretty heated argument with another actor in Texas just months before his death. The man Bob had fought with purportedly swore that he would be coming after Bob to even the score. 
I already mentioned Bob's second wife, with whom he'd been arguing with a lot in the days leading up to his death, but she was found to be hundreds of miles away in a different state. Then investigators were finding that Bob had been sexually involved with dozens of women, many of whom had boyfriends or husbands, and this had been going on for years. So there was a potentially large pool of suspects right there that needed to be looked at. Any angry partners of women Bob had any kind of sexual encounter with. And then there were the women themselves who were on all those tapes. It was possible that many of them did not know that they were being filmed and perhaps one of them found out she was so upset or fearful of being found out or humiliated that she decided to murder Bob. It was also later discovered that Victoria Berry, the woman who starred in Beginner's Luck with Bob and the one who found his body, had actually lied to police. I think I mentioned earlier that it may have been unclear as to whether or not she had ever been intimate with Bob. Well, she had apparently told police that she did not have a sexual relationship with him, even going so far as to describe Bob as being like a brother to her. But it turned out that investigators discovered that she had been having sexual relations with him, so police had to question why she was lying to them. I don't know if she ever explained herself, so we can only guess that she wanted to hide that fact. Maybe it was embarrassing for her, but whatever the case was, she was never really considered a suspect, despite the fact that she was not forthcoming about the nature of her relationship with Bob. From the documentaries that I watched on this case and in the interviews detectives gave, those who were there at the murder scene and were involved in the ensuing investigation, it seemed as though they had settled on John Carpenter as being the prime suspect from pretty early on. So how much or how little they investigated other possibilities, we can't really say for sure. But they definitely went after John as being the one who committed this crime. Among the pieces of evidence found in Bob's apartment was a black bag that was on his bed next to where his body lay. Both of the zippers were open and there was nothing inside but a couple pieces of paper. So it was thought that perhaps the killer had taken whatever items had been inside, but it was never really determined what that may have been. There were a couple of half-full liquor bottles on the counter, one bottle of gin and one bottle of scotch. The woman who discovered Bob's body, Victoria, told police that Bob never drank scotch. One of the more compelling pieces of evidence that investigators really looked into was the fact that the VCR cord had been wrapped around Bob's neck, which the medical examiner determined was done after he had died. It was read into a lot that this was symbolic of something, like a woman or a jealous boyfriend having been upset at the fact that Bob was filming his sexual liaisons and used the cord purposely to send some sort of message. Or the cord could have been symbolic of John Carpenter having committed this crime since the basis of their friendship revolved around filmmaking. Cutting this cord was a metaphor of sorts for the end of that friendship. Then some have thought that the cord was something that would have likely been more indicative of a woman having committed this crime. That perhaps she was unsure if the blows to Bob's head were enough to kill him, so she wrapped the cord around his neck for good measure. I've said it before, I don't read too much into symbolism and stuff like this unless we're talking about maybe a serial killer that has some sort of ritualistic thing that he likes to do to his victims. I do sort of buy into the idea that the killer wanted to make sure that Bob was dead, even if the killer was a man or a woman, because I mean, it's not easy to kill a human being by bludgeoning. At least it's not as easy as people would think. 
People have survived serious head injuries. And even if the head injuries are serious, they may not be rapidly fatal. So to ensure death, strangling the victim with a cord around the neck would likely make it relatively certain that the victim would not be revived or be able to call for help. I do want to talk a little bit more about John Carpenter because when it comes to cases like this, I usually look for a plausible motive. And I don't know, I'm not exactly seeing a strong one in this case. The men had been friends for quite some time, and the friendship was built on filling a need for one another. John had the expertise and the know-how to produce quality, homemade, sexually explicit videos, while Bob was able to entice women into participating. So why would John Carpenter want Bob Crane dead? Some have said that the relationship between Bob and John had been deteriorating. There were some who witnessed tension between the two, as I discussed in the timeline in the day or so leading up to Bob's death. The waitress who had waited on them had claimed to have felt the two were having an issue, that there was tension while she was taking their order. Some have thought perhaps John was becoming too much of a hanger-on. Maybe Bob had learned all he needed to know about video and electronic equipment and no longer needed John's help. He'd be able to continue making the videos on his own, and he really wanted to cut ties with John. There had been some speculation that John may have been bisexual. There were some reports from several of John's acquaintances who said that John was interested in men and that maybe he had developed feelings for Bob, that maybe John made an attempt to act on those feelings and was rejected by him, which in turn caused him to become very upset. There really is no evidence of that, particularly based on the manner in which he behaved with women and how he was constantly, constantly trying to go after new and different female partners. Then there was a thought that Bob was just over this and no longer wanted to have to drag John around with him everywhere he went. Now, some of this makes sense to an extent, but you know, if John was being rejected for one reason or another by Bob, killing him certainly isn't going to resolve that issue. I really don't have much to say about John's sexual preferences because that sounds like a bunch of gossip to me. There really was no proof or evidence that showed that he was ever interested in men and women. But the motive that I do tend to lean towards more is Bob kind of wanting to move on from this friendship with John. The guy was about to turn 50 in just two weeks when he was killed. He had a lot of years and a lot of women behind him. And maybe Bob was feeling like he needed to refocus on getting his career back on track and settling down to be the family man that his kids needed him to be. There had been some speculation that Bob was feeling down about himself and his career because he had been unable to recapture the same success he had back in his Hogan's Heroes days, that these sexual exploits had filled that void for a while. But maybe even that, for Bob, got old. Bringing in John and using his expertise with the electronics and the video equipment took everything to another level for Bob, but that too, perhaps, he grew tired of as well. And really, if you're a guy entering into your 50s, and Bob was, he was about to turn 50, John was already 50, they were born the same year, 1928, John was two and a half months older than Bob, 
Are you really going to want to keep making group sex videos with this guy? And do you really want to keep watching him in all of your videos? I mean, I don't know what all Bob was really into, but at the end of the day, we're just trying to understand what his state of mind may have been as he's getting older. It's quite possible he just didn't feel like keeping up this lifestyle anymore. And if you recall, the day or so before Bob was killed, there seemed to be a problem with the dates that they had had with the two women who were friends. Bob had that date with a woman. He asked her to bring a friend along for John. The friend didn't seem all that receptive to being passed on to John by Bob. And maybe things would have gone much more simple and easy for Bob if it had just been him and his date. Or even if it was just him, his date, and her friend. Like a threesome type of situation. Maybe the girls were really turned off by John and Bob was like, this guy's really cramping my style. I'm better off if I just fly solo. And he knew enough about his video equipment and how to use it to not really need John anymore. And this rejection caused John to become enraged. But we have to ask ourselves, is this a strong enough motive to want to murder somebody? To me, it doesn't really seem like it, but... As I've said in the past, people have killed over less. So with other potential suspects having been eliminated through the police investigation, the focus remained on John Carpenter. We're going to take a look at what the investigation into him revealed the morning of Bob's murder and why some of his actions raised suspicions. On the morning of June 29, 1978, this was before anybody knew Bob was dead, before Victoria Berry had come over and discovered his body, John called the manager at the Sunburst Motel. Her name was Kathy Nugent, and this is where he had been staying that week. This was very close to Bob's apartment. He was scheduled to fly back to California from the Phoenix airport. He had apparently made a reservation to have a limo pick him up from the motel at 10 a.m., but said that he made a mistake thinking that his flight was at 11 a.m. when that was actually his arrival time in California. His flight was supposed to have been at 10 a.m. and he wanted the limo to pick him up at 9 a.m., an hour earlier than scheduled. Kathy told him that there was no way that she would be able to bump up his limo service and that he was going to have to call a taxi instead. So she called a cab for John and he was picked up around 8.45 that morning and taken to the airport. He got there around 9.15. Now, whether or not his flight was at 10 or 11, I can't really say for sure because I've found conflicting information about this. In one article I read, it said that John's flight with Continental Airlines was at 11 a.m. And then in that same article, it said that he arrived in Los Angeles at 11.36 a.m., now, this makes no sense because the flight takes an hour and a half. If he left Phoenix at 11 a.m., he would have arrived after 12.30 p.m., and the arrival time in this article would be incorrect. But if he left at 10 a.m., then the arrival time would have been correct. Now, I don't know how many of us realize this or not, but Arizona does not participate in daylight savings time. So for half the year, Arizona is an hour ahead of California. But during the summer, when the story takes place, Arizona and California are at the same time. So right now, since daylight savings time just ended at the beginning of November, and California has set their clocks back one hour, Arizona is an hour ahead. So right now, if you were to fly 
out of Arizona at 11 a.m. than you would land in Los Angeles around 11.30 because you'd pass through that time zone and you'd lose a whole hour. So I don't know for sure what time John's flight was or what time he had landed, but what we do know is that he was back in California sometime before 1 p.m. And this was about the time that Bob's body was being discovered or about to be discovered. The insinuation is the urgent call for an earlier limo was demonstrative of John being anxious to distance himself from Bob and the murder. But at the same time, police said that they believed Bob was supposed to have been the one to have given John a ride to the airport. And then he also had a rental car to return. So ordering the limo, I don't know why all of that was happening when it seemed as though John had other means of getting to the airport. But whatever the case was, John was back in California sometime between noon and 1 p.m. He was said to have gone home, but arrived to find his own car was on the fritz, so he took his to the mechanic and then he went to work. At around 2.30 that afternoon, John apparently called the Windmill Theater in Scottsdale. The article didn't say what he asked about, but the woman who answered the phone informed John that there was some sort of issue going on at Bob's apartment and that the police were over there. A few minutes after that call, John called back again, and a different employee at the theater answered the phone. John asked to speak to Bob, and he was told that he wasn't there, at which point John said something to the effect of, just leave Bob a message that I arrived back in Los Angeles. Around three that same afternoon, Bob's son, Bob Jr., had received that call from John that I mentioned earlier where John was telling him that he was back in Los Angeles and if there was anything he needed to just let him know. And remember, after Bob Jr. got that call from John, he tried calling his dad's apartment but ended up getting a hold of Victoria. She was there with his dad's dead body and police, unbeknownst to Bob Jr., and she did not give him any indication at that time that anything was wrong. Bob Jr. found out later on from his mom and stepdad that his father had been killed. About 10 minutes after John made that call to Bob Jr., he called Bob Sr.'s apartment back in Phoenix. Victoria again was the one who answered the phone, just as she had when Bob Jr. had called. This has always been criticized, police allowing her to be inside the apartment to allow her to be smoking cigarettes in there and to be answering the phone. But whatever, the scene was not secure at all and it's always been a point of contention. This time, when she answered John's call, she gave the phone over to an officer, and he told John that he was there investigating an incident. According to the officer speaking to John on the phone, John said, quote, I'm John Carpenter. I was with Bob Crane last night. I called him at one this morning to tell him I was preparing to return to California. He told me that he was going to be sleeping late in the morning. John called the apartment back for a second time about a half hour later. The officer asked a few questions of John and also asked for his phone number. The one thing John didn't do was ask why the police were there investigating. He didn't ask the first time he called, nor did he ask the second time. And the police thought it was weird that John didn't wonder why police were at his best friend's apartment. It was at this point they began looking closer at John Carpenter. Investigators eventually tracked down the rental car that John had been using during his stay in Arizona. It was a Chrysler Cordoba. I had never heard of such a car, 
but like we recently talked about cars in the 1970s, this was another one of those big, huge, gas-guzzling American cars, but this one was considered to be a luxury-class vehicle. It was reported that when John turned the car in, he complained about it and that there were some electrical issues with it or something, and that he insinuated that the inside of it needed to be clean. I don't know for sure if he was as urgent about it as it's been reported. It would seem kind of weird for someone to turn in a rental car and tell the agency to clean it inside and out. I mean, why would he care, right? But when police finally had the chance to examine the inside, they found some spots of blood on the inside of the passenger door panel that looked to be dried blood. When it was swabbed and tested, it turned out to be type B blood, which was Bob's blood type a blood type that could be attributed to about 10% of the population. Before the times of science and DNA, typing was all that they could do, and 10% isn't really all that definitive. But the investigators did say that nobody else who'd been in contact with that vehicle had type B blood. John was subsequently questioned about the blood, but he said he had no idea how the blood got inside the car, and he vehemently denied being involved in Bob's murder. So police felt like they had enough pieces of evidence, albeit circumstantial, to land on the conclusion that John Carpenter was responsible for Bob Crane's murder, but they just didn't quite have enough to bring about murder charges yet. The blood in the car couldn't be identified as Bob's definitively. There was a speculation that Bob and John were in the midst of possibly having a falling out, that Bob may not have wanted to continue his friendship with John. There were the reports that John was anxious to not only get out of Scottsdale, but get back to Los Angeles as quickly as possible, but also took measures to ensure that people knew where he was by making phone calls and telling everybody that he was in California if anyone needed anything, and his apparent disinterest in why police were at Bob's apartment when he did call there from California. There is also the fact that there was no forced entry into Bob's apartment, that if it was John that murdered Bob, that Bob would have let him in, or John may have let himself in with a copy of the key. But without any new or compelling evidence linking John to Bob's murder, and with police fairly certain that John was their only guy and nobody else, the case grew cold. Seven years after Bob's murder in 1985, genetic DNA profiling had been developed and testing became possible to match genetic material such as blood, saliva, or semen, and it could be matched up to a suspect. Four years after that, in 1989, DNA testing was performed on the blood found in the rental car to see if it could be matched to Bob, and the results were inconclusive, and the case remained cold. The one thing that was conspicuously missing from the room, the apartment that Bob was living in, was a personal photo album that belonged to him with pictures of the numerous women that he had sexual relations with. It was a photo album that he liked showing to his friends. It was during the search of Bob's apartment that it was quickly becoming apparent that Bob had an exceptionally large collection of home videos and pictures, all of it sexually explicit. Bob had also turned one of the bathrooms in his place into a dark room where he developed film for himself because, you know, back in the old days, you'd have to drop your film off to be developed. And obviously, if you're taking nudes, 
you're not going to want to have those sent out for strangers to see. In the bathroom, there were negatives of even more women in various stages of undress that had yet to be developed. The initial investigation into Bob's death has been criticized because of a number of missteps made by the first responders, police officers, and the medical examiner. For starters, the woman who discovered Bob, Victoria. She had with her a relatively large handbag, which was never checked by anyone at the scene. The implication being is that she may have removed something from the room, possibly that missing photo album. Perhaps she had been one of Bob's subjects that he took pictures of. Also, letting her answer the phone in the middle of a crime scene should not have happened. She did not have gloves on, nor had the phone been dusted for fingerprints. Bob Jr., after he arrived in Scottsdale, he was given permission to collect some of his dad's personal effects from the crime scene, and those things had not been tested for fingerprints either. Evidence that was collected from the scene had not been bagged separately. Everything was put all into one bag, which would have contaminated everything in it. And I also already mentioned how the medical examiner actually started shaving Bob's head around his wounds to get a closer look at them, and he removed the VCR cord while he was still laying there in the crime scene. One of the biggest mistakes was John's motel room, where he was staying, was never searched, even though his name had shot to the top of the suspect list almost right away. As a matter of fact, a huge opportunity to collect some potentially damning evidence was missed when the maid who worked at the motel where John was staying had reported finding a bloody pillowcase and a washcloth in John's room, but she did not save those items. She threw them out. And so those pieces of evidence, if the maid's story was true, was lost forever. But the suspicion that John was responsible for Bob's murder never really lifted off of him. The investigators on Bob Crane's murder case tried numerous times to take their evidence to the state's attorney to see if they could bring about murder charges, but the state attorney insisted repeatedly that there simply wasn't enough evidence for an arrest warrant to be given. Even a couple years later, with a new state attorney in place, the answer didn't change. There was not enough strong evidence to win a murder conviction. The murder of Bob Crane was never forgotten, however. A decade after the murder, John gave an interview to talk about the case in which he said, quote, I never even had a fight with Bob. He was my friend, and he was the goose that laid the golden egg for me in terms of meeting the ladies. Which I mentioned earlier, I mean, Bob is no good to John dead. Why would he want to do that to him? Having no Bob around means that the flow of women is going to be cut off. Investigators would continue to believe that Bob was on the verge of ending his friendship with John, that a fight or an argument ensued between the men, which escalated into John deciding, out of anger, to bludgeon Bob about the head while he slept and tightening that VCR cord around his neck for good measure. Like if the friendship was going to come to an end, then it was going to end on John Carpenter's own terms. Eventually, in 1989, Bob's case was handed over to a cold case unit so it could be reviewed by a fresh set of eyes, and I already mentioned that they were hoping some advancements in science and technology would provide answers about the DNA, but that came up inconclusive. 
By 1992, investigators were able to bring their case to the state's attorney, who finally agreed that there was enough evidence to win a conviction. On June 1, 1992, John Carpenter was taken into custody and charged with Bob Crane's murder. When the evidence in the case was reviewed, some new and compelling things did come to light, but the theory about the killing had remained the same, that Bob no longer wanted to keep up his friendship with John and was on the verge of ending it when John killed him, having flown into a rage by the fact that there was no longer going to be this endless supply of women, compliments of Bob Crane and his celebrity status. Witnesses were re-interviewed, and what they had to say seemed to corroborate that theory. One of the key pieces of evidence that seemed to take this case to the next level for the state's attorney was a photo that had been tucked away in the evidence that had been stored since Bob's murder. Aside from the pictures of the blood that were taken, there was a photo of a speck of what appeared to possibly be human tissue. While samples of the blood that was found in the car were swabbed and preserved, whether or not the speck of whatever it was in the photograph was collected and stored too is unknown because by the time the case was being reinvestigated, the speck itself was gone. It had either been lost or it had not been collected. So all that remained of it was this one large blown up color photograph of it. It was enough for the state's attorney to decide to move forward in charging John Carpenter with Bob's murder. More than 16 years after Bob's violent death, John went on trial. When he was arrested, he was still living in California. He didn't fight extradition to Arizona. This cloud of suspicion had been hanging over him for a lot of years, and he said he was anxious to have his name cleared once and for all. The key pieces of evidence the prosecution presented included the blood that was found on the passenger side door panel of the car. They had pictures of the blood and also had samples of it too. At the time back in 1978, the only thing that could be said about the blood was that it was type B, which was Bob's blood type. When it came to that photograph of that mysterious speck, experts testified on behalf of the prosecution that claimed that that speck came from brain tissue. It could even be seen in the picture that there was a hair coming out of that tissue as well. Despite the fact that 16 years had passed and advancements had been made in DNA testing, the results on the blood that was found in the car still continued to come back as inconclusive. The blood could not be matched to Bob definitively. The defense argued that the blood on the door was so small and easy to miss it could have been left by a previous customer who'd rented the car and it was overlooked in the cleaning process. When it comes to that speck being a piece of brain matter, experts for the defense said it was impossible to identify what that material was based on only a picture. And like I said, that speck was not in the evidence. They don't know if it was collected or lost or never collected at all. But either way, the speck no longer existed except for that picture and the defense insisted you cannot claim that that's brain matter based only on that photograph. When Bob was murdered, a murder weapon was never recovered, but investigators speculated early on that it may have been a tire iron that was used to bludgeon him. Upon the re-examination of the case and a look at the evidence, it became apparent that the murder weapon was indeed a camera tripod and that the killer took it with him when he fled the scene. 
Using a tripod, forensic lab technicians were able to recreate a wound nearly identical to the wounds that were inflicted on Bob's skull using a camera tripod. Bob's second ex-wife, or soon-to-be second ex-wife, testified at trial to the fact that Bob always had his camera equipment with him when he traveled and that he had two tripods. Only one tripod was found in Bob's apartment. The second one was missing. There was also something that had been overlooked at the beginning of the investigation. There was a pattern outline of an item made in blood on the bed sheets next to Bob's body. When those patterns were re-examined, it was found to be most consistent with the shape of a tripod. And in an effort to prove that Bob did have a second tripod that was conspicuously missing from the scene, the prosecution played a video of Bob and John both having sex with an unidentified woman, and in the video, both tripods could be seen. The defense objected to the showing of the video, claiming that it would be inflammatory, but the judge allowed it to be shown. But he also told the jury to not allow the video to cause them to think of John Carpenter as a bad person, but only as a piece of evidence that he had a relationship with Bob. When the video was shown, it lasted about 10 minutes and the private parts of the people in the video were blurred out. And the jury sat through it pretty much expressionless. I don't know if it was necessary to play that video or not. I'm sure it was embarrassing for John, but it was also embarrassing for Bob and his loved ones. I mean, if it could have been inflammatory for the defense, it could be for the prosecution too, since it wouldn't exactly paint either one of these men in the best of light. But anyway, the prosecution put forth a theory that they believed that their motive for the murder was that Bob no longer wanted to keep up his friendship with John and was on the verge of ending things. That this caused John to become angry, resulting in him killing Bob. Their theory was bolstered by testimony from Bob's son that his dad told him, just in the weeks leading up to his death, that John was becoming a nuisance. But the biggest thing John Carpenter had on his side was the fact that all the evidence against him was speculative and circumstantial. There was nothing in the way of physical evidence actually tying John to the scene of the crime. In addition to that, the police mishandled much of the evidence in the case. Evidence was lost or never collected, especially that mysterious speck found inside the rental car. The police were accused of focusing narrowly on John Carpenter from the beginning and failed to thoroughly investigate other potential suspects, which included the countless women that Bob and John had videotaped their sexual liaisons with, who may or may not have known that they were being filmed. If any one of those women didn't know that they were being filmed and then came to find out that they were, who's to say that any one of them or their husbands or boyfriends didn't come after Bob having been provoked by the videotaping. That perhaps they acted and reacted out of fear of being found out or possibly blackmailed. Bob Crane had so many videotapes of so many different women, and every single one of them should have been investigated and eliminated as a potential suspect, and the defense claimed that none of that was done because they zeroed in on John Carpenter from day one. And the defense was able to call to the stand a witness named Walter Fetty. 
Walter at the time was working for a moving company, and on the morning that Bob was discovered dead, he happened to be moving furniture from another apartment in the same complex where Bob was living. He testified that he saw a man emerge from Bob's apartment. The man glanced around the outside area, he looked to his left, he looked to his right, and then abruptly went back inside the apartment. Walter Fetty described the man's height and his hair color, which wasn't too different from John Carpenter's general look. But Walter then told the court that a short time elapsed when he saw that same man leaving Bob's apartment again. This time, however, he had a conversation with him. The man asked Walter if he had a light for his cigarette, and he also told Walter that his moving truck was blocking him from getting to his vehicle. When asked if the man he saw that day emerging from Bob's apartment was in the courtroom, if that was him at the defense table, Walter insisted that John Carpenter was not the man that he saw that day. That was not the man whose cigarette he lit. Well, when all was said and done, the prosecution was unable to prove its case to the jury. They came back with their verdict, acquitting John Carpenter of the murder of Bob Crane on October 31, 1994. They noted that there was simply an overall lack of evidence, and that included that mysterious speck. Nobody could say for sure what that speck was, and all the other DNA testing was inconclusive. John, of course, who was 66 years old when he was found not guilty of murder, was elated that the case against him was finally over. However, he would only go on to live for four more years. John Carpenter died of a massive heart attack in 1998 at the age of 70. Bob Crane's murder remains officially unsolved and that is likely never going to change. In 2016, some 38 years after Bob's violent murder, a local reporter from Phoenix, Arizona named John Hook had the remaining DNA samples found on the inside of the passenger side panel of John Carpenter's rental car retested using the latest in technology to see if they would be able to get anything more than just inconclusive results. They had this big reveal planned on their news broadcast, this is all on YouTube. I think it's about three or four parts. It's not very long. And he had John's attorney there, along with Bob's son, Bob Jr., as well as the prosecutor from the case. They were all there when it was revealed that the DNA from the blood found inside the rental car did not match Bob Crane. The test revealed that there were two DNA profiles in the sample. One was from an unidentified male and the other was too degraded to reveal anything definitive. And with that, it seemed as though the mystery as to who killed Bob Crane only deepened. But for Don Carpenter's family, it solidified for them what they've believed for nearly four decades, that he would not have ever murdered his best friend. And that will bring this 167th episode of California Dreaming to a close. Please come over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It's there we discuss these cases that we cover on our show. We share our thoughts and opinions not only about our show, but any other podcasts that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched recently, any books that you'd like to recommend, as well as current news stories 
We post about our pets, post about our families. We have a holiday coming up. We'd love to see all of your delicious foods that you're cooking. So please come over and share. You can also go over to the show's Facebook page, like that page and leave a review or a recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to with an amazing roster of shows with content that includes true crime, history, sports entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You will find the links to all of our podcasts, as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. For all of my listeners who celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday, I hope you have a wonderful one. I will be traveling to California to visit with my daughter and my mom. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>